Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each episode, we review a saga, talk about its plot and themes, and the historical context, and then we put it on trial at The Saga Thing. And we've got a good one for you today, because this, this is Floamana Saga. It sure is. But um, <laughs> let me stop you at the edge of the pool before we uh, dive on into this episode. We are, <laughs> that, was we... A, that was a flawlessly executed interruption, John. Well, nice approach, you. excellent takeoff, very little <laughs> splash. That's all I had on short notice. Okay. Uh, I wanted to explain where we've been. Ah, yes, the old overwhelmed with classes bit. I think we uh, we do that routine at the start of every semester, don't we? I mean, we do, and the start of the semester is always hectic for both of us. But I was thinking about the trip to Iceland. Oh, yes, yes. Well, that was uh, actually a while ago at this point, but uh, well, all our loyal listeners, of course, already know that we were in Iceland. Remember, we posted a short episode from Reykholt, the home of Snorri Sturluson. Mm-hmm. The infamous Snorri Sturluson. Of course. Uh, but that was at the very beginning of the conference. We did a lot after that, and I think... You seem to have forgotten that you and I haven't really even talked since that uh, fond farewell in Reykjavik. Forget? No, don't, John. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Oh, that's it. I'm, I'm wounded now. You know I love you. So, for those of you who don't remember, John and I were attending the 17th International Saga Conference in Reykjavik uh, just before our semester started, conveniently. Yes, we were. Uh, we've both been tempted to attend the conference in the past, but with uh, one thing and another, it never came together. But this time, with the event taking place in Reykjavik and Reykholt, and with the conference focus being on the Islendingasogr, we couldn't resist. Yeah, John and I were on the same panel as it happened, along with Johanna Katrin Sigurdsdottir and Sverrir Jakobsen. Now, I'm not sure how we ended up on the same panel, but it worked out brilliantly. Yeah, I, th- I meant to ask somebody about that. I never got around to it. Yeah, I don't know. But it was it was a pleasure meeting uh, Johanna and Sverrir. Uh, the, the whole conference actually was full of amazing people. Uh, hopefully... Hopefully, we can convince a couple of our new friends to maybe maybe join us for an interview sometime. Yeah, we actually went to the conference hoping we'd find time to record an interview while we were in Reykjavik, but we were just crushed by the schedule all week long. Yeah. Uh, we were meeting with so many people and were so busy running from one session to another all week. Yeah. It wasn't all business, of course. Uh, we also met a lot of fans of the podcast, made new friends, enjoyed the hospitality of the American Embassy, went to some oh, amazing yes. talks. Uh, we sampled a, a variety of great beers, and we even closed a few bars. All of that, yes. Uh, it was a very full week. Uh, yeah. On the rare occasions when we had a spare moment, we, uh, as far as I remember, we mostly collapsed in the Airbnb that was our home away from home for the week. Yes, the Chateau de Sagathin. Yeah, I, I did not sign off on that name. Well, the conference was great, and we could probably do a whole episode just on the excellent papers we saw and the people we met. An entire episode name-dropping people from a saga conference. That's the idea. <laughs> Who's interested? I'm not sure we'd get that past programming. <laughs> but uh, no, it really couldn't have gone better. Yeah. And less than 48 hours after returning from Iceland, uh, my first semester here at the University of Mississippi started. And it's been a whirlwind. Yeah, I had uh, a few days to recover, but that mostly involved preparing for the semester and hanging out with my kids while my wife went on a trip. Uh-huh. And then the craziness started. Yes, but uh, things are calming down for me at least, and I think, I think it's time we begin our dis- we begin our discussion of Floamana Saga. Yeah, I mean, we've done a few relatively obscure sagas with some fantastic elements in them lately, and we thought, why stop now? Yes, uh, <laughs> hit the button and give us a little preview. This is the saga of the hero Thorgil's foster son of Scarlet. 
In this episode, you'll encounter a number of Thorgil's ancestors, starting with Atli the Slender, who was given charge of Solm in Norway by Hafdan the Black. The story of Thorgil's family is tied to this land, and their claim of sovereignty over it despite the objections of several generations of Norwegian royalty. You'll also meet Thorgil's great-grandfather, Holstein Atlason, a noble chieftain who was forced to flee Norway due to rising tensions with King Harold Fairhair, and the results of a hastily laid oath to be a fair-minded judge. Soon we find ourselves in Iceland, following the lives of Holstein's offspring. First up, his son Atli, a meddlesome man who enjoys wielding power and influence. In the end, Atli gets caught up in a property dispute that proves fatal. Up next is Thor, Atli's young son, who proves a capable Avenger. Thor hangs around just long enough to father our saga's hero, Thorgils, before disappearing at sea. Thorgils has a rough childhood, but soon he's off adventuring, making friends with Norwegian royalty and wrestling with the Walking Dead. Yes, Thorgils is a monster killer, but he's much more than that. Learn all about his life, his adventures, and the miracles he performs as Saga Thing takes on Flowamana Saga! So it may not be one of the more <laughs> famous stories, but Flowamana has its fans among Saga scholars. Ooh, that's a well-executed segue by the American team. The judges are definitely going to like that. Hmm. Well, let's check in with the German judge, Wilhelm Heisman, <laughs> who describes Floamana as a saga. Heisman is the German judge. <laughs> yeah. He describes uh, Floamana saga as made up of set pieces drawn from wildly divergent genres to an extent, he says, unparalleled among the Islandinga Sogar. So is that a compliment or just an observation? I'm going to go with observation, but mm. Heisman's observation should serve as a warning to our listeners that we'll see some more literary genre blending in this saga. Now, this sounds like we're uh, venturing into some historically questionable material here. Maybe just a little. But let's be clear. Heisman's observation about genre blending isn't meant to denigrate the saga. His point is that Flomana tends to charm modern readers with its pastiche of different literary conventions, even if it's not aesthetically up to the standards of the greatest family sagas. Wow. Okay, that was almost a compliment. I kind of took a nasty left turn there at the end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it was meant to be as negative as it sounds out of context, but there you go. Well, maybe so, maybe not. Uh, Certainly there are other readers who offer the same sort of backhanded compliments to this saga. Uh, Newt Leistl treats Flomana as an artifact of an oral culture, and many of the saga's features in his mind are explained by the conventions of oral storytelling. It is a conventional story in a lot of ways, really. So I, I guess there's something to that. But but I've read Lystal too, John, and he's not always so complimentary toward this saga. Well, I don't know that that was so flattering. Uh, <laughs> but that was my point. He's he's come not to praise Floamana, but to bury it. Yeah. Uh, he says that it's an inferior saga in its historical value when compared to earlier sagas. Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. He's basically saying the same thing as Heisman. But the fact that an early 20th century German critic is looking for historical content in a saga is hardly surprising. Mm-hmm. Late 19th and early 20th century German, Norwegian, and Danish scholars all looked for the same things, usually with a nationalist agenda. Those early scholars weren't at all interested in literature for its aesthetic or literary value. Uh, is this veering into a lecture on literary theory? Is that where we're heading? No, no, sorry. I, I'm in the midst of teaching a critical history of Beowulf, mm-hmm. and I got caught up in the moment. I just, I don't know what happened. <laughs> but uh, no, it's not It's not shocking to me that scholars looking for historical reality are going to come up empty-handed with Flo Monosaga, or yeah. most sagas for that matter. 
Uh, but this is an author in Flow of Mana who's more interested in literary achievement, I think. And it's going to be up to us to decide whether he achieved it or not. All right, but hang on. We haven't turned to our old friend Jonas Christensen yet. Oh, well, this should be good. Well, uh, here we go. Floamana is one of the fanciful sagas of the 14th century, Ooh. put together from bits of Lanama book, legendary sagas, and even hagiographic material. There are impressive elements in the account of Thorgil's trip to Greenland, but these deserved a better narrator. <laughs> There's the gut punch. Good old Jonas. Um, I mean, he's right about the impressive elements. Thorgil's trip to Greenland is going to be a major part of this story. And mm-hmm. we're not going to get to it this time, but trust us that this short saga is worth breaking into two parts before the judgments. You'll want us to do justice to the craziness of the Greenland section when we get there. Well, that's the plan. We're going to see how this first part goes. Yeah, but we'll have to decide as we go whether this saga deserved a better narrator. Yeah, we can revisit that at the end of the saga. Uh, I have to say, it's interesting that nearly every scholar's response to this saga is to point out that it's a literary grab bag of different genres. Yeah. Well, we, we've talked before about the practice of literary pastiche. Uh, these later sagas seem to baffle most saga scholars because they're all looking for a very specific kind of structure, style, and plotting that matches the earlier family sagas. Right. And you often accuse me of looking for the same thing. Because it's true. Uh, now, as you say, this saga is from a later period. I think we could talk about the range of saga literature that the author might already know through oral or written sources. Yeah, periodization is important for this saga. Richard Perkins claims that Flomana was written for Haukar Erlinson, and as everyone knows, Haukar was law speaker in Iceland at the tail end of the 13th century from about 1293 to 1299. Okay, uh, so Haukar died in the 1330s, 1340s. Well, 1334. Oh, you sound very confident. Well, like I said, everybody knows this stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, but in reality, I looked it up. Yeah, that, that explains the confidence. Yeah. And uh, Halker's lifespan allows us to place the date of this text confidently within a decade or two of the early 14th century. So so this saga was written as late as the early 14th century. Yes. This is an early 14th century saga, probably written about 40 or 50 years after Njal's saga, but set in the same part of Iceland. Right. And incidentally, that makes it something of a rarity. Uh, yeah, the, was, the southern yeah. quarter of Iceland is underrepresented in the sagas, surprisingly so. Even though it was a populous part of the island, there just wasn't a major manuscript production center in the south during the saga writing age. And right. that hurts their region's representation in the literature. Right. Although, I mean, I have to say having Njal's saga on the list of southern sagas somewhat balances the ledger there. Oh, you could say that. So there's certainly more we could say, but I think we can save further commentary for later. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, there's just one more bit of business to take care of. Andy, if you are guessing, which you are, how many Hravenkels is Flow Saga? Well, I will tell you, I haven't given it any thought, to be honest. So mm-hmm. why don't you just... Uh, well, now will be the time to give it some thought. Ah, uh, I see. Uh, well, I guess it is short, only 35 chapters or so. So mm-hmm. I'm going to not think too much about it and say it's somewhere around two Hravenkels, maybe a shade under that. That's very good. The answer is a 1.94. Look at me. Wow. See that? Wow. I think we should just stop here. I'm not going to get any better. (laughs) All right. Uh, So it is time to get things started. Uh, What are Mm -hmm. we uh, starting with in this one? A a big battle? Epic feud? Grand discoveries? What? We have a wooing. Ah. Part one. The wooing of Helga Arnadotter. Now, we'll get to the wooing of Helga eventually. In fact, it'll play a very small role. 
But before we do, there are a lot of names to untangle. Yeah, it's true. This, this one opens with a series of complex genealogies for us to sink our teeth into. It's actually been a while since we've tackled one of these sprawling genealogies. Yes, and that is exciting for you and I, John. Unfortunately, I'm not so sure this is an edge-of-your-seat kind of moment for anyone else. Well, then we're lucky this is our podcast, aren't we? Ah. Listen, listen, we've been nickel and diming for a while now. Sagas with 30 or 40 people mentioned. This time out, we get to play with a saga that comes out of the gate with about 150 named figures and eight or nine different kin groups. It's a veritable smorgasbord, orgasbord, orgasbord of saga genealogies. Okay, Templeton. Uh, but yes. <laughs> yeah, you got that. Good. Uh, I'm assuming our younger audiences don't get that, though. <laughs> oh, well. You think we have a younger audience? <laughs> good, good point. Yeah, probably not. But there are so many names, John, that I'm not even sure how we're supposed to make sense of it for the listening audience. Well, let's start small. Okay, well, how's this for small? Let's start with where and when does this saga start? It's way too small. Uh, this is a settlement saga. The action's going to start right around the time that Harold Fairhair is taking control of Norway. And in fact, what we're going surprise. to be seeing... Yeah, I know, I know. We're going to be seeing quite a lot of Harold's family in this first part of the saga. Uh, our story is starting in Norway with some of the families who are trying to find a way to live with the growing power of Harold. Right. So anyone who's playing saga thing bingo at home can now fill in the Harold <laughs> Fairhair and settlement age squares. Harold 42. Harold 42. Uh, even though this author is just flinging names at the reader for the first third of the story, I think we can get things ironed out a bit. Right. Well, we've got three groups to keep an eye on right at the outset, mm -hmm. uh, with more to come later. Uh, do you want to start us off with the first I one? Don't mind if I do. Uh, so our first kin group is led by Earl Otley the Slender. Otley has three sons, Halstein, Herstein, and Holmstein. This group is going to be important for a number of reasons, but for now, the most important thing is that Outley is from a prominent family. He's the son of Earl Hundolf, and his sister is Solvor, the wife of Harold Goldbeard of Sol. Mm, already a great beard name. Mm -hmm. So it's Otley and his sons that we're interested in in this saga. Right. Now, obsessive saga readers might know this family. The Outlesons, Halstein, Herstein, and Holmstein have a sister called Solvig the Fair. In Eil's saga, one of Eil's great uncles, Olver Hump, falls in love with Solvig and tries to marry her. Otley refuses the match, which leads to Alvir becoming an amateur poet as he plums the depths of his broken heart. That, that's quite poetic. <laughs> Thanks. Utterly irrelevant to the saga, though, so... Well, I mean, these connections are important. At least I keep telling myself that. Okay, so that's our first group. The second group is connected by Solvor, the sister you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Solvor Hundel's daughter and Harold Goldbeard have two daughters. One marries Kettle Flagstone, and the other, Thora, marries Hafdan the Black, king of Opland. Now, Hafdan the Black is someone we've heard of before. Yes, he's the father of Harold Fairhair, yep. but not quite yet. Right. His son with Thora is named Harold the Young, but Harold Goldbeard, Thora, and Harold the Young all die in quick succession. Oh, poor Havdan. But how convenient for our narratives. Those deaths mean that the link between these two groups is pretty much severed. Yeah, yeah, just hang on to that. Mm. Because Havdan marries again to Ranghild Sigurd's daughter, and their son will grow up to be named Harold Fairhair. 
I mean, that's a great family to marry into. Yes, it definitely is. Ranhild, uh, which you've apparently spotted, is the daughter of Sigurd Hart, which means she's the great-granddaughter of Sigurd Snake in the Eye mm-hmm. and the great-great-granddaughter of Ragnar Lothbrok. That, that is impressive, but uh, as long as we we're throwing greats around, she's also the great-great-great-granddaughter of Sigurd Fafnisbane and Brunhild. Yes. So this saga doesn't have the Ragnarsons as rivals to Harold. Instead, they're somehow four generations removed from him and his ancestors. I right. Well, you're Vikings doing this was ready for that. Yeah, you're dealing with the Ragnarsons though, so they can show up anywhere. Right. Yeah. Ask the Anglo-Saxons. Oh, I get it. That's very <laughs> cute. But uh, while we're on this tangent, this this author isn't done here. He also carries this family line back past Sigurd Fafnisbane about another five generations or so, where we find. You want to guess, John? Who? I mean, at this point, it could be anyone. Uh, Harold hasn't gone back in time to become his own ancestor, has he? (laughs) No, no. Um, Then how about Odin? Yes, indeed. (laughs) Odin it is. Harold is being set up as less than a dozen generations removed from the Allfather himself. Well, I mean, if you're going to make up a lineage, you might as well steal from the best. Uh... Now, this saga does mention the same legend about Harold that we had in Kelmasinga Saga, right? That he was fostered by Dolfri, the giant under the mountain. So, okay, we have two groups. Harold Fairhair's family and Otley the Slender's family. Right. And the short version of their story is that Harold's father, Hafton the Black, placed Otley the Slender in charge of Saul. Because they were related through marriage, Right. Right. Otley is the uncle of Havdan's first wife. Excellent. Yes, that's exactly right. But that connection was based on Havdan's first marriage. Harold Fairhair is from Havdan's second marriage. When Havdan dies, his son, Harold Fairhair, who isn't related to Otley, wants the land back. And Otley, well... Well, let's just say he chooses not to comply with the request. Yeah, it's a bit more extreme than that. He, uh, I would call it giving Harold the old Bronx cheer. Which is not a smart thing to do, Harold Fairhair. Well, maybe not. You just don't do that. Uh, Right. I mean, inevitably, there's a clash. Uh, Harold and his father-in-law defeat Outley's force, and Outley is mortally wounded in the fighting. Well, that didn't take long. So even though he's dying, we've been paying attention to Outley for a couple of reasons. His sons are going to be important to this next section, first of all. Sure. But in the longer term... This saga will eventually center on the life of a man named Thorgil's Scarleg stepson, who is the great-great-grandson of Outley the Slender. So this early story sets up a bit of tension right away. Families that start off on the wrong foot with the royal family tend to stay that way. Now we'll have to see whether Outley's descendants can shake off the animosity of the Norwegian kings. All right. Now we have to introduce our third family group, which is a man named Leif Hromundersson. His second cousin, Ingolf Arnarsson, and Ingolf's sister, Helga. Right. Now, these are all great-grandchildren of a man named Hromund Gripsen. Leif is the son of Hromund Hroldsen and Hrodni, <laughs> who's the... I know, a lot of Hros. <laughs> who's, who's following this? Uh, <laughs> this is no, something where you really now. need to sit down so, and, and, and write this stuff out. I know, I know. Uh, so Leif's parents are Hromund Hroldsen and Hrodni. Uh, of course. And Hrodni is the daughter of Kettle Beaver and the granddaughter okay. of Horthakari. When we get to nicknames, if you don't address Beaver. Kettle Beaver? <laughs> I, as far as I know, beavers come from North America. Um, well, just tune in. Okay. Uh, Ingle's father, by the way, is Orn. Uh, and 
Helga, obviously, is the Helga Arner daughter from our section title. She yes. of the wooing. She of the wooing, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was probably about time we get to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ingolf and Leif are sworn brothers, even though they're also cousins. And right. they form a successful partnership as Viking raiders. Oh, please. You make it sound so crass. These are businessmen. Their business is attacking and looting other ships. So the technical term for that is Viking raiding or pirating. Yes, they are procurers, expert (laughs) in the nautical art of informal merchandise acquisition. Wow, that is some grade A horse manure, but I like it. Well, Ingolf and Leif. Seahorse manure, yes. Well, Ingolf and Leif and their procuring of ships, Mm -hmm. uh, they form an alliance with Herstein and Holmstein Atlason, the two younger sons of Earl Atley. Now, where's Halstein? Well, he's the older brother, and he stays home on the farm, gets married, and takes over a chieftaincy. So he oh, doesn't really need to do that stuff. Such a good boy. He yes. makes his family proud, that one. Yes. And we might not want to be tainting his character just yet, I guess, is maybe another thing to consider. Well. So this partnership is very successful, and the men begin to spend festivals at each other's farms. And mm-hmm. soon, Herstein, the middle brother, notices a beautiful woman in Ingolf's hall. Now, this would be Helga, Ingolf's sister. It would. And since Herstein is apparently a bit of a romantic, he starts a game in which he makes a vow at the end of the feast and says that he will marry Helga or no other woman. Well, well, that's not creepy at all. Uh, Has anyone checked with Helga about this, or is this another lack of consent situation? No, and maybe. In that order. Because (laughs) (laughs) Herstein hasn't actually checked with anyone before making this announcement, and Ingolf... Mm -hmm is not so thrilled that his sister's being spoken for by a half-drunk guest. I don't think... The book doesn't actually say Herstein's drunk, although I I think it's a fair inference. Uh, And Ingolf's actually pretty calm. He gets Halstein, the oldest brother, to agree to be an impartial judge in any matter that may arise as a result of Herstein's vow, and only then turns the offer down flat. He says, I vow to share my inheritance with no one but Leif. Yeah, there's a lot going on in that moment. Yeah, there is. Uh, Harrison doesn't understand a word of it, by the way, because he's frankly not the wisest owl in the hoot factory. His <laughs> his brother has to explain, I assume using small words, that Ingolf is saying no. Because he actually wants his sister to marry their cousin Leif, his right. cousin. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you didn't have to say you didn't have to say cousin twice in that accusatory tone, but yeah, second cousin, by the way. Well, so first of all, the tone and phrasing of Ingolf's vow is a solid mm-hmm. parody of Herstein's vow to marry either Helga or no woman. Yes. Or no other woman. But there's also the way he tied Halstein's hands by getting that promise of fair judgment out of him. Yeah, I like that part. Uh, yeah. The Atlasons obviously don't like being brushed off like this. But with Halstein's honor as a chieftain staked on his promise of neutrality in any matter between them, he can't offer assistance to his brother without damaging his own honor. Yes, the game of honor is always on. Yeah, I have to say it's a deft move by Ingolf. Yes, and we, we've got at least one other oath to consider here. Oh, right. Uh, Leif concludes the round of oaths by saying that he'll not be a worse person than his father. Which just seems like a setup to me. I mean, Halstein <laughs> immediately chimes in. <laughs> that shouldn't be hard considering your father had to leave Telemark and come here because of his crimes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember the tee-hee being part of it. No? Uh, no, that's a that's a callback to the beginning of the chapter. Yes. Uh, we didn't mention it because the details aren't terribly important. 
but it's true. This this is sort of the history of uh, the family. Now, Halstein's joke here is pretty obvious. Right? Uh, Leif can still be quite bad without risk of matching his father. Yes. So if I'm reading the situation right, these four guys started the evening as friends, mm-hmm. but they're rushing home to change their Facebook statuses to It's Complicated. I am not on Facebook and therefore cannot speak to this, but I'm going to say sure. All right. Well, it doesn't take long for It's Complicated to turn into something a bit more axe and swordy. <laughs> Is that another Facebook status? <laughs> it should be. The following year, Leif goes out raiding against Ingolf's advice to be mindful of the oaths they made. Leif, Leif just says, you decide your own journeys, sworn brother. And he promises to sail away quickly if he gets into trouble and then leaves his partner home to tend the farm. It's actually, it's a fairly tense exchange. Yeah. Ingolf clearly suspects their former friends and raiding partners might not be happy to see them. And it turns out he's right. Uh, Leif departs with three ships, but he almost immediately meets with the six ships of Herstein and his brother Holmstein. They attack Leif at once, and one of Leif's ships is overcome very quickly. Yes. John, things are looking grim. What we need here is a miracle. <laughs> a miracle indeed. Oh, God. Now how about a miracle in the form of five more ships sailing toward the battle with a tall and handsome man at the prow of the lead ship? That'll do, pig. Yes. Mm-hmm. And who who is this swashbuckling fellow? Well, that's a very fair question because it's no one we've met before. Oh, <laughs> maybe this is what they're talking about, about the, the weak narrator and the poor construction. Mm-hmm. Um, it does kind of undermine the moment a bit here to introduce a whole new no, character. No, it's, it's fine. The handsome man yells to Leif, You're fighting against great odds, kinsman! And it would be valiant to support you, kinsman! So I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is uh, probably a relative of Leif's, maybe a kinsman, if you will. <laughs> you, it's that close reading skill at work. I can't put anything over on you. That's right. Uh, this is Olmod the Old. Oh, Olmod the Old. That explains everything, John. Mm-hmm. Who's Olmod the Old? <laughs> yeah, this took a bit of looking at. I know people think we just spew these lists of names out of the start of sagas, but honestly, we cut it way down. <laughs> and this is a great example of how saga authors expected their readers to really focus on those genealogies. I said earlier that Leif's mother's father's father was named Horthakari. Yes, I'm sure you did. Well, this guy, Olmod, his patronymic is Horthakarison. Ah. He's Leif's great uncle. See, the saga never actually explains all that, though. Nope. I don't know if people (laughs) fully realize how much mapping out all of these relationships we have to do before recording an episode of the show. I I, I sent a picture of my quick sketch of the first few Mm -hmm. chapters out on Twitter last month, and it's a lot to untangle. Well, what fascinates me is that we are supposed to get all this. Yeah. I think it speaks to the level of memory and attention to detail that was expected of a saga audience. It's, it's something worth mentioning occasionally. The average medieval person's memory was almost certainly superior to ours. Okay, but it's way too early in the saga to get distracted like this. So with the help of a great uncle Olmod's reinforcements, mm-hmm. Leif turns the tide of the battle. Herstein Atlason is killed in the fighting, but Holmstein escapes with an injury and sails away safely. Right. Now Olmod sailed into this saga, saved Leif's bacon, and now he sails right back out of it again. <laughs> there's, there's kind of an awkward moment where they both invite the other one to their home. 
but it's got that vibe of, oh, hey, we should we should totally get together soon. Been so busy. Right. Great to see you. Kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and then they both sail to their own houses, and Olmod never shows up again in the saga. It's so weird. I don't even know yeah. why they give them dialogue, right? <laughs> uh, Olmod uh, ex machina. Nice. Yeah. It was a, a really nice of him to stop by. Um, mm-hmm. But meanwhile, Leif and Ingolf decide to spend the winter together with their followers just in case the remaining Atlasons try anything. Right. And in fact, they soon hear that Holmstein has recovered from his wounds and is planning to attack them at Ingolf's farm. But they ambush him and his men, and they're able to kill Holmstein. Right. Now, that sounds like we're hurrying things along, but that's really all that's reported about this episode. Yeah. I mean, it's supposed to be a pretty significant brawl, but all we learn about it is that Holmstein's dead. And now a large group of men from the community gather to support Leif and Ingolf, and a few of them visit Halstein, the last remaining Atlason, to try to make a settlement. Yes, and there's a lot of pressure here. Halstein's lost both his brothers to these guys, but there's no denying that his brothers were in the wrong. Mm-hmm. And Leif's supporters, some of whom are prominent men in the district, are exactly the kind of important landowners that Halstein, as a chieftain, needs to keep happy. Right, it's a hell of a tricky situation. And Ingolf isn't going to make it any easier on him. He tells everyone that, he, that will listen that he trusts Halstein to judge the case because of uh. that vow he made to be neutral in anything that happened because of Herstein's proposal to Helga. Yeah. The oath comes back to haunt him. Mm-hmm. Who saw that coming? Yeah, everyone. Everyone <laughs> saw that coming. So Halstein has to now act as an impartial judge for men who have killed his own brothers. That's kind of a rough position. It is. Uh, and when Halstein does judge the case... He's clearly being careful to seem fair-minded. He says, My brother Herstein falls outside the protection of the law, and I award neither money nor outlawry for that killing. Well, that does seem fair. I like it. Well, yeah, but then he judges that Holmstein was acting to avenge Herstein, and for that, he outlaws both Ingolf and Leif and confiscates their farms. Oh, well, that's legal, I guess, but a little bit harsh. A bit? You're allowed to seek revenge for a brother, obviously, but there's a strong case to be made that the cousins were attacking in self-defense when Mm -hmm. uh, the Atlasons were killed. I agree, but I think they're stuck. They gambled that Halston wouldn't risk punishing them when popular opinion was on their side. And now they've lost. So that's it for Ingolf and Leif. They leave Norway and move to Iceland, but we're not going with them. You can read about that in the Book of Settlements, by the way, as the author tells us. Right. Remember, the family whose story we're following here is actually Halstein Atlasons. But Halstein might not be in Norway for much long either. Uh, a little while ago, we mentioned that Halstein's father, Atli the Slender, died when he refused to give back control of Sol to Harold Fairhair. Mm-hmm. Well, Harold's still around, and he hasn't exactly mellowed any about the son of his enemy. <laughs> well, that's not good. Uh, oh, in case the people don't have a map of historical Norway handy... Wait, uh, wait, wait. Probably... Who doesn't have a map of historical Norway? Uh, <laughs> I know you've got a fairly disturbing one tattooed on your abdomen, but Do not I? everyone can see that. Mm. Uh, so, Son is a region in western Norway, and it's right in the center of the area Harold's trying to forge into a kingdom. Uh, so, yeah, he's got opinions about Halston refusing to play ball. Yes. You know, for once, I think we might have to say he's got a good point. I mean, the land already belonged to Harold's father. It's been placed under the control of Halstein's family, but you can see why Harold doesn't think that arrangement should be permanent. Okay, so we're we're getting set for the first real showdown of this saga. Halstein against Harold. No, because Harold tends, 
No, because Harold sends Halkin the Old with an army instead. All right. Halston against Halkin the Old. A battle for the ages. Yeah, that, that'd that be great, but it's a pretty one-sided battle since <laughs> Halstein decides to leave before the battle starts. Oh, God. Cue sad trombone music. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not easy to stand your ground against Harold. I think many, many people I mean, sure. know that. It's, it's harder to stand your ground when you're actively running away, but okay. <laughs> well, discretion <laughs> is the better part of Valor, John, and running away is presumably the better part of discretion. I don't think that's how that works. Oh, well, okay. So, like many other men and women of the Norwegian aristocracy in his generation, Halstein's going to cut his losses and seek his fortunes in a new land. Hoist the failure sails, lads! We're going to Iceland! Part 2. Battle Valley. Halstein's making a good decision here. Standing against Harold's a good way to get killed. Sure, but you already revealed yourself as a secret agent of Harold's. When you what? said he had good reason to take Son back from Halstein. No one's buying you as an impartial observer. Halstein, what, you ain't. What, 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 I, I protest, sir. I, I protest. What, All what? right. Noted. Now, Halstein makes his way to Iceland with a well-stocked ship. And like other high-status men, he tosses his high-seat pillars over in a display of trusting the gods to find him a place for his new home. It works out great, actually, with the pillars floating ashore at a promising-looking place, which is then named Stokseri, which means Pillar's Point or Pillar's Spot. Yeah, that does sound great. It's uh, too bad the actual ship comes in a little off to the left and <laughs> smashes to bits on the rocks. Well, that is embarrassing. <laughs> hey, man, thanks to good seas and my steady hand, we made it! And with the help of Thor, I now claim this land as... Boo! All right, shut up back there. Now, who wants to get out and push? You suck! (laughs) Our shipwreck sketch, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, It's not actually as bad as all that, though. Yeah, well, They are close enough to shore that they can jump out and walk the rest of the way. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's got to be pretty awkward, especially when the uh, saga suggests that the pillars float right past them and land safely. <laughs> so uh, what we're learning is really that Halston that. <laughs> is slightly worse at navigation than, you know, a, a large piece of wood. That's not great. Yes, but things improve quickly once he gets on shore. The saga fast forwards a bit, but we are told that Halstein claims a large swath of land, marries another settler named Thora Olvistolter. And has two sons named Atli and Olvir. Hmm. Halstein becomes a powerful and popular man and dies in his old age. That is quite a fast forward. Yes, well, we've got a few more generations to get through here. All right, we can speed it up a bit because basically the only thing we learn about Olvir Halstenson is that he dies young. That is literally the only thing we've got on him. Yep. But Atli's in perfect health and inherits everything from his father and brother. So things are looking good for him. The, the author describes him as a powerful man, but meddlesome, and like his kin in many ways. Yeah, not a lot to go on there. But Otley's not the only major settler in the region. There are a number of other people entering the area around the same time that Otley is coming into his strength. Right. Around the same time that Otley's right. coming into his strength. Right. We're, we're in the later settlement period at this point, and we've seen before that this is when crowding starts to become an issue for Icelanders. There is still unclaimed land around. But the best spots are getting a little crowded, and that leads to some jockeying for position. 
So what's happening is that a number of people are fleeing Harold Fairhair kind of late in the game. Mm -hmm. And they're arriving years after the first settlers. So the saga introduces another huge batch of names at this point. Right, and we can probably skip most of them just for clarity and simplicity. Uh, A lot of the people named are primarily historical and genealogical markers, probably for the audience's sake. Uh, But a couple actually are important. Uh, Ozur, son of Thordrim the Champion, is a landowner in the region. He's got a slave named Bothvar. So we're going to start with these guys. Ozur frees Bothvar and gives him a patch of land with the understanding that the land will be returned to Ozur when Bothvar dies. Okay, although technically doesn't it say that the land only goes back to Ozur if Bothvar dies first? Now hang on to that thought. Yes, it does, but hang on a second. There's another man in the area named Orn of Valergerthi. Uh, Orn lives next to the land that Bothvar has been given to farm, and he's not thrilled with his new neighbor. In fact, he suspects Bothvar of being a bit of a thief. You know, is this is this a hint of classism, do you think? Is this just a prejudice against a freed man? I mean, it's hard to say, but I do. Mm-hmm. There's never any evidence that Bolvar is playing dirty tricks or anything like that. But on the other hand, it isn't long after he moves in that 60 of Orn's horses go missing. So Now, that is a lot of horses to lose track of accidentally. I grant you that. Sure, but it's also a lot of horses to try to hide. And again, sure. there's no evidence that Bolvar took them. But Orn summonses him for the theft anyway. Okay, now this is fairly easy to explain. Bolvar isn't certain of his defense because it's... It's obviously hard to prove you didn't do something. Uh, so he approaches Outley Halstonson for help. Outley takes over Bothvar's property in trust, essentially absorbing Bothvar into his household, sort of as the price for taking over the lawsuit. Right. He then goes to the thing where he confronts Orn over the case. And when Orn refuses to back down, Outley destroys Orn's case through underhanded means. Yes, but we still don't know whether the actual lawsuit was legitimate, do we? Uh, nope. Uh, we also don't know what exactly Outley did to ruin Orn's case, just that it was effective. Yes, this feels like one of those moments when we see that cynicism about the law. Mm-hmm. Orn's case against Bothvar is based on a suspicion, not on evidence. Sure. And there's a chance that what we're seeing here is a powerful man using a spurious lawsuit to try to recoup his losses. Mm-hmm. If Orn can force Bothvar to take responsibility for the horses, then the loss becomes Bothvar's. And Orn can take Bothvar's property or bankrupt him to refill Orn's pockets. And for that matter, Atli's defense isn't based on anything. He just walks up to Orn and says, drop the case or I will destroy it for you. <laughs> and then he does. There's not <laughs> right. even a pretense of the law actually having any power to curtail powerful men against weaker ones. Well, I mean, this is a 14th century saga, right? There's certainly room for a bit of cynicism about chieftains throwing their weight around and wrecking the legal system. I guess so. And the result of all of this is that Otley gets to keep everything. Mm -hmm. The strong get stronger, the weak get screwed. It's pretty cynical, but realistic stuff. Well, okay, but it's not entirely over yet. Let's get briefly back to your point earlier, which is also a legal issue. Which one is that? I I throw so many darts, John, it's hard to keep track of which ones hit the board. (laughs) The one about Bodvar's land. See, Uh. there was a stipulation that his former master, Ozur, would get the land back if Bodvar died. But in the meantime, Ozur has died. And now Ozur's uncle, Hraven, who's taking over the family finances, wants that land back. Yes, but Balthvar's not an independent farmer anymore. He gave his land to Otley in exchange for Otley's support against the accusation of theft. Absolutely. And in case that isn't convoluted enough, 
Baldivar does die shortly after the case is resolved. Oh? Yeah, but he dies shortly after Ozur. Okay, so hang on. Let's work this out. The land was given to Baldivar by Ozur. Ozur died before Baldivar. Mm-hmm. But Baldivar made over the land to Atli. Then he died. Yes. So Atli has the land and the right to it, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think that's right. But it doesn't seem that there were witnesses to that agreement oh. between Ozur and Baldivar back at the beginning of that sequence. Okay. So Ozur's next of kin, Uncle Hraven, makes a claim on the land as belonging to his family upon the death of Baldivar. Or else Hraven's relying on the same might-makes-right argument that Atli used in the first place. Sure, or that. Uh, Hraven and Atli both maintain their claims of ownership of the land, and it isn't long before there's a confrontation. Atli, his foreman, uh, Ladolf, and two farmhands walk out to the contested land and begin cutting down trees. Hmm. Hraven has a man watching for that kind of activity, and it isn't long before he's rushing off with eight men to stop Atli's defiant wood choppery. His, what was that? His wood choppery? Yes. So we're just gonna, we're making up words now. It's a good word. Somebody has to be the first to use it. All right. So the Wood two chopper. groups attack each other in a narrow valley, and there's a pretty bloody brawl. Outley and Ladolf attack a pair of Hraven's men, and Outley kills his man, but then Hraven leaps at him and badly wounds him. Meanwhile, Ladolf kills another of Hraven's men, but is then overrun by the superior numbers of his enemies and is killed while trying to retreat. Outley is too badly hurt to continue, and Hraven moves in for the kill. See, things are looking bad for Atli. Mm-hmm. But at this moment, a settler in the area named Odin Lancet rushes to the scene of the battle and forces the two sides to stop fighting. Mm-hmm. The final total for the battle is two of Hrava's men dead and several wounded, but Atli is mortally wounded and his foreman, Ladolf, is dead. The valley yep. where the fight happened is later named Battle Valley to commemorate the day. So this guy, Onan, who breaks up the fight, must be pretty well connected. He better be. From what the story tells us, it sounds like he's stepping into the middle of the fight by himself and stopping it. Well, I mean, he's an original settler, first of all. He's OS, I suppose. Uh, But he's also (laughs) married to Thorgerd Sigmund's daughter, the sister of Morth Gigya. This is Morth Gigya's brother-in-law? Yep. Very impressive. Mm -hmm. And I can see why no one would want to kill an in-law of the country's greatest lawyer in a generation. (laughs) But it's still pretty risky to jump into the middle of a battle alone and demand calm all of a sudden. Right. Well, I mean, all he's really doing is shielding Outley, who's down and bleeding out from his injury. But, I mean, yeah, it is a risk. Uh, And then he offers the protection of his home to Outley, which pretty much ends any threat of violence. Yes, but it's a little too late. Outley's injuries are fatal. Well, they're mortal, sure. But Outley does manage to travel back to his own house, so they're not immediately fatal. Uh, yeah, but- once he's there, he speaks to his sons, Thord and Olvir, before he dies. Well, kids, I'm dying. Now I know what you're thinking. Gee, Dad, when do we get to avenge you by killing Robin? Well, right away, boys. Avenge me immediately. Oh, Dad, I'm nine and Olvir's <laughs> seven. I don't think this is a good... Sorry, son. No time for small talk. I'm dying, you know. Now, off to your vengeance. Well, that's just some good fatherly advice right there. Yeah, well, you got to raise him right. Uh, So, Otley does die, and since their mother's not completely insane, they aren't allowed to go seeking revenge right away. Not until your chores are done. Now help me bury your father. Uh, Something like that. 
Uh, actually, Oliver isn't really interested in revenge at all. He ends up going abroad, making a living as a Viking, and eventually settles down back in Norway. So it's going to be left to Thord to take revenge. Well, then it's a good thing that Thord takes after his old man. He waits until he's 15, which is probably a sign that he's a smart kid, by the way. Uh, the saga tells us that Hraven, this man he needs to take revenge against, is a very large man. And Thord, even at 15, isn't a match for him physically. What he needs is a plan. Oh, it's not going to be cunning, is it? Well, it's slightly cunning. Uh, we haven't had have a lot say, of cunning plans lately. No, this is slightly. Uh, Thord watches Hraven's movements, and when he learns that Hraven has ridden out from home alone... He settles down on the side of the road with a spear that had belonged to his father. He spends the entire day hiding in the grasses at the roadside until Hraven finally comes riding home in the evening. And when Hraven passes Thord's ambush, Thord simply leaps out of hiding and stabs the spear through Hraven's side, killing him instantly. So we have an ambush that actually works. Yep. I would say Thord has some potential, but sure. it's not very manly, this Well, oh, ambush. but I mean, it's a 15-year-old attacking a grown man. Well, uh, I will say, though, I mean, it's, you know, it has the advantage of no no eyewitnesses, you know. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I, was, I stood in front of him and I <laughs> speared him off his horse. I couldn't help but he tried to turn and run. Uh, now, the problem is that Thord has to survive the fallout from this plan. Hraven's yeah. family is large and powerful, and they're going to be looking for compensation or revenge. But this is a remarkable moment. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. They're not out for a blood vengeance. They actually seek compensation. And Thord's response is to say, Look, I had to seek revenge for my father. There's no arguing that. But we can settle this by offsetting the killings. So all sides are considered settled. And somehow that works. <laughs> Both sides accept the deal and they're fully reconciled. Now, this is interesting to me. Not just the voice you've chosen. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't think it invalidates what we said earlier about a cynicism about the law to see the things work out this way. This is an extra-legal settlement. The two sides don't bring in lawyers. They don't bring in negotiators, third-party adjudicators, or anything. They just decide for themselves how they want this sorted out, and then they commit themselves to it. Yes, it's a bit idealist, but it is what the law is supposed to do. I don't know whether it's cynical to reach a conclusion that's exactly what the law wants. Yeah, but the law, or at least the procedures surrounding the law, so often get manipulated and distorted. This is much simpler and more pure. Men who have reason to hate one another are able to acknowledge that their enemy's grievance is as legitimate as their own, and they accept that everyone's honor is settled. Well, then we can agree that this represents an ideal sort of settlement process. Mm -hmm. Maybe not all that realistic, but ideal. Yeah, but before anybody gets the idea that the saga is going to be peaches, sunshine, and amicable settlements, I have to warn you that Thor's not going to be with us for very long. Well, that's ominous. <laughs> Well, I mean, it would be, except there's no story to tell. In the space of less than a dozen sentences, Thord grows up, marries the daughter of a prominent man named Asgir Norwegian Scarer, has a baby boy named Thorgils, and then dies. Hang on a second. Asgir Norwegian Scarer. Yeah, isn't that a great one? Where's the story? Yeah, he got the name after killing an entire Norwegian ship's crew. That's a shipload of dead Norwegians. Uh -huh. <laughs> Very impressive. Can I assume that we'll be seeing Oscar again in the Nickname Awards? I mean, I just explained the name, but I'm sure he'll make a cameo. If he doesn't get the opportunity to claim that award, <laughs> I'm going to be very upset. So, all right, back to Thord. How did Thord meet his maker? Uh, well, at the ripe old age of 22, 
Thor decided to sail to Norway to claim his ancestral lands in the Son region. Oh. Right? So it's that same plot of land that Halston left uh, over uh, two generations ago. Uh, yeah. And they're still after this. But Thor's wife, her name is Thorin, by the way. Thorin warns him that she has a bad feeling about this voyage. But he sets out anyway. The ship disappears at sea, and Thor is lost with his entire crew. See, this family has a terrible track record. Mm-hmm. But we've gone through four generations already, and only Halstein has managed not to die young. Well, it's probably fair to say we're dealing with an unlucky family here. But hey, maybe baby Thorgils will turn the family fortunes around. Sure. Part 3. Scarleg's Stepson. All right. Thorin doesn't waste a lot of time mourning her lost husband. A year later, a retired Viking named Thorgrim Scarleg meets Thorin, and when she tries to hire him to run the farm for her, he offers her a counterproposal of marriage. Oh. And after a three-year engagement, they're married. Yeah, now this seems to be a bit of an error in judgment by Thorin. What's wrong with marrying a guy named Scarleg? No, no not the marriage. I mean, Mazel tov. may they be happy together. I mean that she tries to put Scarleg on her payroll as a foreman. He's actually a successful farmer and a fairly important guy, which she doesn't seem to realize when she tries to hire him on. Yeah, that part of the story gets glossed over a bit, but yes, it's clear later that Thorgrim is a well-respected man, and and he has significant wealth in his own right. Thorin just doesn't seem to know about it when she first meets him. There's another small error in this, which is Thorgil's age. Uh, He's two when his father dies, three when his mother meets Thorgrim. Three years later, they marry, so Thorgils is presumably six. Okay, I'm with you so far. Then we're told that everyone in the family gets on pretty well together, that Uh the joint farmland thrives under Thorgrim's management. So some time is passing here. And then during a subsequent summer, Thorgils is at a gathering and wants to join the other kids in a game. So presumably Thorgils is at least seven by this point, or maybe eight or older. Right. But the saga says he's five which means only three total years have passed since his father's death. It's not an important detail, but it's a bit of evidence in favor of the argument that this author is, he's more interested in literary pastiche than in presenting material that passes historical muster. Okay, granted. I I mean, I think there's a much quicker way to demonstrate that, though. I think there are several quicker ways. Life isn't always about the quickest way to do something, Andy. Uh, We know that here at Saga Thing. That's right, I'm going for artisanal. Uh, Are you uh, stalling on purpose? No, I'm, I'm just very tired. <laughs> oh, well, we've got a set piece in this next section that regular listeners will recognize. Young Thorgils, however old he is, is about to start abusing animals. Ah, a reliable indicator of a young man marked out for great things in life. Or a serial killer. Either or. Well, great <laughs> is value neutral in that context, so I think mm-hmm. either works, of course. Uh, what happens is that Thorgils wants to join a ball game with some older boys, but they tell him that only those who have killed a living thing are allowed in the game, which is uh. a scary thing in a saga. Serial <laughs> yeah. killers is a, something of a, of a fad around the neighborhood. It's also starting to sound a lot more likely for Thorgils. Yeah. Well, fortunately, Thorgils has a plan to get in the game as it were. Mm-hmm. His stepfather owns a low-quality cart horse named Eling, you see, and... Well, this is going to be unpleasant. Yeah. So Thorgils gets up in the night, leads Eling out into a remote shed, oh, and no. stabs it to death with a spear. <laughs> Jeez. And then he goes back to bed. Just like that. No build-up. Yeah. No creative torture. Just a stabby-stabby and offer a snooze. 
Well, something had to die, John. I mean, Thorgils wants to play ball. <laughs> oh, that poor cart horse. But uh, as you hinted a minute ago, this is a set motif of the sagas, even down to details like the victim horse belonging to Thorgils' father figure. Yeah. Remember, we saw Gretor Asmundrason flay the skin off his father's prize weather forecasting horse. Oh, yes, and uh, he left the horse alive, but uh, mm-hmm. so mutilated that his father had to destroy it. Right, and the point, I don't, it's not the cruelty, or at least I hope it isn't. It's to demonstrate the boy's dissatisfaction with his situation, whether that's being assigned menial chores or excluded from a social situation. As a motif in the sagas, it generally signals an active and adventurous future for the young animal torturer, regardless what we might think of it. In, in any case, his stepfather seems to have not read the sagas you've been referencing because when he finds out the horse is dead, he's confused. Mm-hmm. I know of no man who would want to pick a fight with me. I am responsible for the horse's death, stepfather. Oh, that's who there got was this again? ball game, you see, and only killers are allowed to join. So, you and I do not share the same temperament. Go now to your friend Lot, since we are not of like minds. Yeah, that's actually a pretty controlled response from a guy with a name like Thorgrim Scarleg. Yeah, well, he's retired, you see. Sure. And in essence. What he's doing is setting up Thorgils as in a fostered situation. Loft is a grown man, not a playmate of Thorgils, so Loft mm-hmm. will he'll serve as Thorgils' foster father. And also keep right. this lunatic away from, <laughs> from Thorgil. <laughs> right, from the rest of the horses. Uh, now, when he leaves, Thorgils takes with him the nickname of Scarleg's stepson, which is a bit of a mouthful. So long, stepson. I'd give you a horse to ride to Lops, but... I'm afraid I haven't got one to spare for some reason. <laughs> don't the don't the barn door hit you in the ass on the way out? Yeah. Now this is actually a good deal for Thorgils. I mean, not the nickname necessarily, but the move. Loft likes him and treats him well. And over the next few years, Thorgils develops into a promising young man. He excels at fishing, rowing, fighting. Does he, he even b- catches- build his own boat? From scratch? Uh, no, no, he's not Ref the Sly. He's huh. uh, a little bit more conventional than that. He does catch a group of thieves in the act of robbing a burial mound and takes their money. Uh, a few years pass like this, and when Thorgils reaches the age of 16, he wants to sail to Norway to seek his fortune. To seek his family's fortune, really? Yeah, in a manner of speaking. The, that claim to the region of Son has been passed down from father to son for four generations. From Halstein to Outley to Thord to Thorgils. This is the plot of land that was originally given to Halstein's father, Otley the Slender, by Hafdan the Black. Right. It's something of an obsession with this family to lay their claim to that land, even though their original ownership of it is a bit dubious. Yeah. And now, Thorgils is the scion of Earl Atley's line, and he's ready to stake his claim. So while Thorgils is getting himself geared up for this journey, he's also setting up another saga trope. The insistence of an Icelandic family on their rights of inheritance. Yeah, it looks like it at this point, doesn't it? Uh, the most famous example of this is probably Ail Scala Grimson. Never heard of we've him. We've already seen... Was that? I've never heard of him. Who's that? Yeah, who, some guy. Hmm. Uh, but we've already seen this same idea play out in a number of uh, other sagas. We'll have to wait and see whether this author has something else up his sleeve. This next bit of the saga really does play out according to expectations, so and uh, so much so that we can afford to move ahead a bit. Thorgrim mm-hmm. refuses twice to give Thorgils the money for an expedition, so Loft eventually gives him the money. But Thorgils prophesizes that Thorgrim will not be able to refuse him a third time when he returns, and he sails out to Norway and spends a winter with a powerful farmer named Olaf. 
All right, all right. Now that's enough fast forwarding. We can't skip over this part. Olaf is a powerful farmer, but we, we shouldn't undersell that. He's such a prominent and wealthy man that he hosts the entire entourage of King Harold Greycloak and his mother, Gunild, for part of the winter. Ah, right, yes. Harold Greycloak is king of parts of Norway. Yeah, that's a bit of a letdown as a title. King of some chunks of Norway. Well, not the thing to put the fear of God into your enemies, true, but he's got his mom with him, John. Oh. That's a lot more intimidating. Yeah, well, it is actually, because Gunnild's terrifying. Yes. Uh, we've seen these two before, uh, most memorably in Njal Saga, when they hosted Hrut Herdelsen for a year. Uh, Hrut spent most of that time with Gunnhild as her boy toy, and when he left, she cursed him with the inability to have sex with his wife-to-be in Iceland. Yes. Remember, this is the curse that causes Hrut's genitals to swell whenever mm-hmm. he tries to have sex with Un, his wife. Yes. It's a bit of a stiff penalty, if you ask me. Oh, no. You just couldn't help yourself, could you? And, I'd, uh, I, I'd erect a scorn poll against you, but I think you might mis- misunderstand me. <laughs> I see what you did there. So, Harold is the grandson of Harold Fairhair, the great-grandson of Halfdan the Black. In other words, this is the guy whose ancestors gave Solm to Thorgil's family and mm-hmm. then took it back by force. Uh-huh. I think we can assume that this will not be a friendly reunion. Well, that's why you shouldn't make assumptions, because Harold and oh. Thorgils get on very well, in fact. And by the end mm-hmm. of the visit, Harold is calling Thorgils his champion. So there. Well, we should say Thorgils is a bit of a charmer when he wants to be. And he's being smart about this and not bringing up the land claims right away. But once they've had a few days of bro bonding, Thorgils mentions his hope of laying claim to his family's lands. Which has got to be an awkward moment. Yeah. So, your, your kingship... You know the land that your grandfather killed my great-grandfather over and then ran my family out of Norway over? Ah, uh, yes. I, I think I remember hearing something about that sometime. Well, I'd like it back. It's why I'm here, in fact. Uh, oh? Well, this is awkward. You see, my mother now has total control over those lands. Oh, well, but aren't you the king? I'd have thought that you could just no, make no, no, your no. own money. You will have to take it up with her. Seek her friendship, and it will do you good. Oh, that is just embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, Grey Cloak doesn't have a great reputation, it seems, in the Icelandic no. sagas. And he's earned it. <laughs> Bit of a mama's boy. Mm. So, in, in essence, Harold is admitting that his mother is the real power in Norway. Here he's found a new follower who seeks favor, and rather than grant that favor and bind Thorgils to him through gift-giving, or refuse Mm -hmm. him and look strong but offer some other compensation, he's just saying, yeah, you you gotta ask my mom, I I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, definitely a failure from the perspective of a gift-giving culture. Yeah. But deference to one's mother isn't a crime, Andy, especially when you're talking about lands that she directly controls. Uh, Those are her lands to give away, not his. It would actually be high-handed of him as a king to give away lands belonging to a prominent supporter. Mm -hmm. And whether she's his mom or not, Harold would be seriously overstepping his bounds to give away land held by any member of his family without that owner's consent. Quite right. This isn't the absolute kingship of late eras. Harold has rules he has to play by to be a respected king. He does. And it's also interesting that she's able to own that land by herself, Mm -hmm. and it's respected. Um, But the fact that Harold does nothing to facilitate Thorgil's request suggests to me that Gunhild's power over him isn't just that of a powerful landowner. 
I mean, mm-hmm. her word carries more weight in his kingdom than his does. And we saw that in Y'all Saga, and this might just be picking up that same that same uh, trope, right? Um, right that's a right. great example of it. Uh, no matter who's wearing the crown and playing at being king, Gunhild really is the one who's ruling in Norway. Oh, I agree with that. I don't think Harold's alone in showing deference to his mother, though. He's a good boy. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, she does what she wants in Norway. We'll keep an eye on this relationship, especially when we finally get to Ail's saga, where we'll see these guys again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for now, let's get back to Thorgils. Well, so, I mean, this is pretty straightforward. All Thorgils has to do is make nice with Gunhild, and he's got his land grant, right? You know it's not going to be that simple. Well, it can't be, because the relationship of an Icelandic supplicant to a Norwegian monarch pretty much guarantees that there's going to be a catch to any gift or friendly gesture. Yeah, now, this is pretty much all hook. Uh, Gunnhild claims to like the look of Thorgils, but instead of answering his claim, she offers to make him one of Harold's men. And then he'll get his land. Uh, no. Then <laughs> she's likely to look favorably on his request. Oh, that's reassuring. That yeah, well, it's a moot point in any case, because once Thorgils hears this, he doesn't really want to be Harold's man. He gets his uh, Icelandic moment of glory here by telling Gunnhild, I'm not worthy to be your son's man. So he's denying Gunnhild to her face. That is a bold strategy. Let's just see if that works out for him, everyone. Well, it depends on what you're hoping would happen next. Well, let's see. Is it Gunnhild becoming enraged, making threats, and physically kicking Thorgils away from the throne? Why, yes, it is. Oh. Uh, Thorgils is officially on Gunnhild's... Uh, what's a PG-rated name for a shit list? Oh, he's on the naughty list. Well, she's not Santa Claus, dude. The poopy list? That seems a bit juvenile to describe a sorceress with the power to swell Thorgils' man parts to cartoonish size if she wants. That's not juvenile? All right. Uh, So let's just say that he's angered a politically and supernaturally powerful queen mother whose goodwill he was supposed to be trying to win. Well, when you put it like that, it sounds like Thorgil's just plain screwed up. Yeah, he did. Uh, I mean, the author's making a point about the capriciousness of Gunnhild, but I don't think that's And the passivity of Harold, too. Sure, and that. Uh, But before they leave, Harold does tell Thorgil's they're still buddies. Yeah. Just not when my mom's around. He doesn't say that. And amazing, I'm not making that up. That's almost word for word what Harold says. <laughs> Strong leadership there, Harold. Uh-huh. So uh, what's in store for Thorgils now that he's blown his chance to recover his family's land? Part four. Bring out your dad. Meow. Meow. <laughs> Well, that's an ominous beginning to this section. Well, I mean, it doesn't refer to Thorgil's dying. Or does it? Ooh. No, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. Unless it does. But it doesn't. No. Uh, this is where the saga takes a turn into an entirely different set of set pieces of the restless undead variety. Can I say it's about time because, I mean, the saga reads okay, but I can't <laughs> imagine anyone still listening. <laughs> right, it meanders a bit. It it's, does. Uh, it takes its time getting underway. Yeah. Well, these are so, some uh, of my favorites, these these yeah. these uh, walking corpses and ghosts that we encounter. Mm-hmm. You are so disturbing sometimes. Uh, okay, so Thorgils decides it's best to spend some time away from the Norwegian court. Probably a smart move. Yeah, he ta- makes a trading voyage that goes well during the summer, 
In the autumn, he stays in Vik with a woman named Gutha and her son, Aldun. Mm-hmm. To be clear for anyone who hasn't memorized the coastal cities of Scandinavia, Vik is <laughs> who hasn't still... done that? Well, Vik is still in Norway. Thorgils isn't going home, but he's being careful to avoid any problems with Gunhild. Sure, and he continues that by choosing to spend the winter with a different landowner named Björn. Uh, Björn who? Well, just Björn. Just Björn. It's by the makers of Baby Björn. Uh, now, this is something that happens a few times in this saga, especially when we edge toward more supernatural or outlandish stories. There's a noticeable lack of detail about the people Thorgils interacts with in this section. Now that you've completely tipped our hand about this next part, let me explain ah. very briefly. Bjorn's farm is a pretty dull place. Yeah, they don't Bjorn, even bother giving each other last names. Yeah, right. Bjorn's a good host, but everyone goes to bed early every night. Mm-hmm. Thorgils eventually learns that the problem is that Bjorn's father, who died recently, has been seen walking after death, and people are afraid. Well, I think that is an appropriate response to running into somebody you buried last week. Sure, but Thorgils isn't too concerned about this. Sure. And one night during the winter, he hears something moving around on the roof. Is it the prancing and pawing of each little hoof? It's more of a thrashing sound, really. Oh, okay. And it's also a lure, because when mm. Thorgils grabs his axe and goes out to see what's happening, he only gets as far as the front door before he sees a hideous ghoul. Definitely not St. Nick. Not unless you're really into scaring children. <laughs> Thorgils chases this ghoul back toward Bjorn's father's burial mound, but then it turns and leaps at him. Thorgils drops his axe, and the two begin to wrestle. They struggle for a while, but Thorgils is able to overpower the dead man. He throws the ghoul onto its back, scrabbles to grab his axe, catches his breath, and then chops off the corpse's head. That's a good day's work. It's Milla time. Well, it is a good job, and Bjorn's grateful to Thorgils for saving the farm. From Bjorn's father's corpse. Yeah, it always strikes me as odd when we see one of these. I mean, mm-hmm. if your dad is an afterwalker, there's probably something bothering him. And maybe work on that solution to the problem instead of always bringing in the outsider to defile his corpse. Andy, this isn't a Hallmark special. (laughs) Walking corpses in the sagas aren't usually looking to hug it out with their next of kin. Well, something's clearly bothering him, and they could have just asked. Well, whatever it is, it's contagious. Because only a few days later, Thorgil's friend Althun comes to Bjorn's farm to ask for help. Yes, and this is Althun who lives in Vik with his mother Gudha. Well, yes, but technically no. That's what he's come about. All right. Gutha's died. Uh, But since her death, there's been so much supernatural activity that everyone's fled. Something in the air. Yeah. Alvin needs Thorgil's help to try to dispose of Gutha's body and stop the hauntings. Since when is Thorgil's the ghostbuster of the region? Because he ain't afraid of no ghosts, Andy. Okay, then. So we have a lot of generational communication issues to work through in Norway. Why don't yep. they just sit down with Dr. Phil and talk to each other? Well, I mean, Thorgils is nothing if not a good friend. So he's going to help Alvin through this. And he's going to do that by making a box for the body while Alvin builds a funeral pyre. Then they load the body into the box and the box into a sledge. And since Thorgils has some experience with restless bodies at this point... He ties the lid of the box down and places a heavy weight on top. Smart guy. Uh-huh. Then they start dragging the whole pile over the frozen ground. But they haven't got far before they hear a creaking noise from the box. Mm-hmm. It's a coffin. It's a box with a body inside. You could just call it a coffin. Well, I mean, whatever. It's kindling now. Because <laughs> Gutha bursts out of it and stands getting her bearings. 
that's a cool image. So we're properly yeah, in a horror story now, right? Yeah. I mean, if if Thorgil's wrestling a corpse to the ground and chopping its head off didn't already signal that, yeah. Uh, so Alvin and Thorgil's leap onto Gutha, each of them grabbing her by an arm, and it takes all their combined strength to hold her. They have to drag her to the funeral pyre and then throw her into the fire, waiting until she's completely burned. And then Thorgil's, who I have to say is at least a Zettelmore-level Ghostbuster at this point, returns to Bjorn's farm for the rest of the winter. And Aldun presumably goes off to begin a lifetime of therapy to try to deal with the events of the day. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so Thorgil spends the rest of the winter quietly before renewing his efforts to win back his lands. But I think we need to pause here for a moment. Okay. I mean, yeah, if you hadn't said something, I would have. Uh, this is about the two hauntings? Of course it is. Once again, we have an undead landowner who attacks the living after his death. If we can just do some basic comparative work here, this scene with Bjorn's father is obviously of the type with Gretchen's fight with Glom. Sure. I mean, even down to the importance of the threshold as a line separating the human realm from the monsters. Absolutely. And the location of the fight, and the loss of the hero's weapon that turns the fight into a wrestling contest, mm-hmm. and the corpse riding the roof of the farmhouse. I mean, we can keep piling up the connections. And we can look beyond Gretchen too. Uh, this is uh, this is a pretty well-traveled road for saga stories and folk legends. Well, I would say the second story also stands up to a comparative reading. First of all, there are a few superficial similarities with the death of Thorguna that leads to your favorite hauntings in Erbidja. <laughs> ghost seals. Yeah, wacka ghost seal. Yeah, exactly. In both cases, we have a woman whose death sets a series of hauntings off. Her corpse must be transported. And there's an episode in which she rises from her coffin, but doesn't actually commit any specific acts of violence. Okay, that works. It's a little looser, but it works. Wait till I get going! Where was I? <laughs> Shoehorning in a Princess Bride reference, I think. Precisely! But the point I was going to make is that these two stories together create another story, and one that we've talked about before. Oh, are you, uh, are you really... Yeah, Beowulf, baby. It's got some <laughs> definite Beowulf parallels going on. All right, it does. I mean, if you say it's got parallels with Gretchen, it's got to have parallels with Beowulf. <laughs> but let's be clear first that we're not making Magnus an argument. Magnus Fjalldal is rolling in his grave. <laughs> uh, but let's be clear that we're not uh, we're not making an argument for a direct connection between all these stories. Or, or are you, John? Please say you're not. Oh, no, 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 definitely not. Uh, but as we've said before, this is pretty clearly a story cluster that has iterations all over the medieval Germanic world and probably predates it by a significant margin. We've seen that same set of motifs more than once. Two hauntings in a row, the second by a mother. The hero fights the first monster barehanded. The second monster is a more difficult fight than well, the first. Well, I'm not sure about that one. The text says that the fight with Bjorn's father took a while, and Alvin's mother didn't even really fight back, so... But he has help there. Thorgils wins out over Bjorn's dad alone. But Alvin's mom, we're told, takes all the strength of Thorgils and Alvin together to restrain him. Hmm. Well, all right. I will allow it under protest, but... Uh, oh, so kind. Uh, anyway, once again, what we have is enough parallel form to suggest a connection, but nowhere near enough to argue for a direct connection. Remember, we talked about Fjold, Magnus Fjaldal's argument in The Long Arm of Coincidence, uh, when he says that there's no link between Greta's saga and Beowulf, we mostly focused on these parts of the stories, right? The fights with the monsters. Yes, and we came to a similar conclusion. Fjaldo's probably right that there's no direct borrowing between these traditions, but most of the scholarship never claimed that anyway. There's mm-hmm. a much broader and more distant connection among a heap of different stories. 
Sure. And those parallels are most likely due to a long, long oral storytelling tradition that was shared among different groups, or may even show a shared storytelling history that predates the breaking up of the Germanic peoples. We want to push it back that far. But we're kind of edging out on a limb here, which you can usually tell is happening when academics say things like, most likely and may show. Yes, and ultimately where we've gotten with this is to say that Heisman was right. This saga is mainly a collection of motifs, and sometimes the story seems almost secondary to the inclusion of these narrative set pieces. I mean, we, we've been talking about this for probably, I'd say, a good 20 minutes now, this saga. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what is this saga about? <laughs> so far, it's about a series of people who pass on their obsession with lost lands in Norway to their sons. Yeah, that's about all I can think of, too. Yep. <laughs> you know? Uh, but to that story, you can attach so many different sort of narrative clusters. Yeah. Uh, that it becomes a very interesting sort of exercise in creating a saga that is almost a... Uh, 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 a Frankenstein's monster of other sagas. Yeah, that's true. All we need to do is get him in a boat, send him towards Norway, and let's see what happens. Right. Well, it's uh, a long way around we've taken, but yep. uh, we, we're getting somewhere. So uh, mm-hmm. what's next? Well, hang on. We're uh, we're forgetting something. The sword and the shirt. Uh-huh. Before Thorgil's... The sword uh, and the shirt sounds like uh, the worst Arthurian legend ever. It, it does at that, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, one man's quest to unite a kingdom and dress business casual... Whosoever pulls this sword from this shirt will be king. <laughs> it just sounds like senile Merlin is just wandering around Albion giving random prophecies. Yeah. The stars tell me that this is a good year to plant goats. <laughs> <laughs> yay, yay, verily he who smelt it to him shall it be dealt. <laughs> I I don't think that works in the passive voice. I I kind of like it. Also kind of crude. Yeah, well. Well, he's just phoning it in on the prophecies at this point. I mean, what else does he have to do? Anyway, uh, so before Thorgils and Alvin part, uh, Alvin tells Thorgils, Now, you've shown me great friendship, Thorgils, and manly valor, as you do generally. I'll give you a sword and a shirt. If it happens... That I ask for the sword back in the future. I want you to return it to me, and I'll give you another weapon just as good. So was he, uh, he started off sleepy, and then he got a hint of, I believe, Scots in there, but... You well, you can be sleepy in Scotland, Andy. Could have been Irish, I'm Those not things sure. are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> I think it kind of shifted in the middle there. The, but uh, I feel like that's a moment that's going to be kind of important later. Yeah, we'll file it away somewhere. Uh, now... While all this has been going on, there's been a change of power in Norway. Harold Greycloak has been killed in an ambush in Denmark. Wait, what? told him his mother wanted to see him. Yes. What? Uh, now, his killer, Hauken Sigurdsson, who's better known as Hauken Jarl, is now ruling Norway as a sub-king of Harold Bluetooth of Denmark. Oh, my. When, when do we get to the uh, part where the all those people are skiing and saving the baby? Yeah, that's... <laughs> That's a movie. Oh, uh, that's a good movie. And it's also, it is also something that happens, but not right now. Oh, okay. Well, the author is alighting some fairly complex stuff that's going on in Scandinavian politics at this point, which is mm-hmm. great since it means that we can slide right past it as well. So this right. puts us where <laughs> I, I put think, on our skis. Yeah. We're in the uh, early 970s if Hauken Jarl is ruling over Norway. Yeah, very good. Uh, sometime in that period. 
And Haakon is making his tour of Norway to confirm his authority with the regional landowners and chieftains. And soon enough, he stops at Bjorn's house. So this is now the guy Thorgils has to talk to if he wants those lands in Sonback. It's getting a bit convoluted, isn't it? Uh, he wants those lands. Thorgils is a focused person. He asks Bjorn for help, and Bjorn tries to negotiate with Hauken on Thorgil's behalf. And not surprisingly, Hauken isn't terribly impressed with this. And I, <laughs> I can't really blame the guy. It's not his problem. Yeah. We're a full five generations down the line from that original moment, and Thorgil's ancestor was only ever given charge of the land by, ha- uh, by Hafdan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was given charge of it, not given ownership. Exactly. Right? It's an important distinction. It's a shaky claim at best. But Thorgil's is so determined. Surely that counts for something. Well, it sort of does. Hauken offers to add Thorgils <laughs> to his household, and if he proves himself, they can talk about the land claim again some other time, which is exactly what Greycloak said. Well, except it's not what Gunhild said. Remember, he <laughs> deferred to Gunhild, and she said, well, I'll think about it. Yeah. Uh, so the Norwegian king is offering a settlement that benefits him in the short term and keeps the Icelander dangling on a promise. This should be fine. Well, I mean, it's going pretty well for a while. Thorgils does settle into the king's retinue well, and, and everyone likes him. He makes a close friend named Thorstein the White, mm-hmm. and he also gets to know Eric the Red, who's staying in the king's court as well. Uh, now, Andy, I noticed you didn't say made friends with Eric the Red. Yeah, see, I'm not sure that Eric the Red has friends. Right. But, uh, yeah, there's a little bit of a rivalry between these two. They actually are friendly with one another now, but we're anticipating a bit because they're going to have some problems with each other later in the saga. Absolutely. Uh, now, what about Thorsten the White? Seems to me we've heard that noble name before. You mean in, for example, the great saga of Thorstein the White? That does ring a bell. Um, episode 21, if my notes don't deceive me. Oh, your notes are just fine, John. But this is not the same Thorstein the White. So who's this imposter? <laughs> it's just another guy with the same name and nickname. Uh-huh. One major difference is that the Thorstein the White from the saga was an Icelander, and this one is a Norwegian. Yeah, he is, yeah. Uh, and he's now, I want to point out, the companion of an Icelander. Which makes him a bona fide Norwegian companion. Congratulations, Thorstein. Uh, and now, if as if that weren't already enough to put Thorsten one foot in the grave. Yeah, someone should be measuring him for his coffin right now. I know. Or his box. <laughs> or his box. Uh, Thorgils now cements their friendship by giving Thorsten the shirt Ooh. that Alvin gave to him. Please tell me it's red. Please tell me it's red. Oh, it's only at this moment that the author tells us the shirt <laughs> is a scarlet red. Another actual red-shirted Norwegian companion. This is amazing. Uh, I love it. We haven't seen one of these since Njal's saga with the uh, Norwegian who climbed onto uh, Gunnar's house and got killed for being dumb enough to wear a red shirt to sneak attack. So uh, this guy's got to die, right? I mean, it seems inevitable, but uh, for now, they're both safe in Hauken's court. Well, they are unless Thorgil starts mouthing off about that uh, the soul lands again. So Thorgil soon brings up the Solon lands with the king again. Of course he Sorry, does. Sorry, what were you saying? Yes. Oh, nothing. Uh, he, does he place the uh, the Norwegian companion in front of him while he talks about Solon? I mean, even for a saga figure, Thorgils isn't notable for his patience. Well, he's single-minded, Andy. Uh, anyway, instead of throwing him out for being an obsessive pain in the hindquarters, Hauken decides to assign Thorgils the task of collecting tribute from the Hebridians, who haven't paid their taxes in three years. Paid their taxes? Yeah, functionally, yeah. I, I know it's a tribute, but it's basically taxes. To improve the roads, of course. 
So Thorgils is being sent off to collect tribute on behalf of a new king whose authority is being flouted by the people he's supposed to collect from. Uh-huh. Would we guess that this is a good assignment? No, we would not. Uh, this is a test. And Thorgils is up for it. He agrees to the journey and asks his almost certainly doomed buddy, Thorstein the White in the Red Shirt, to come along with him. Little do they know what's in store for them on this journey and in the future. Yes, but those stories are going to have to wait a while because that's where we're going mm-hmm. to leave Thorgils and company for now. Setting sail from Norway with a new and possibly impossible mission. And the next time, we'll be picking up the story of how Thorgils makes out in the Hebrides and in his further adventures. There's tragedy, comedy, and more than one shipwreck still to come in Thorgil's story. (laughs) Well, there's more than that. I have on a good authority that we're going to be graced with our first cameo appearance in the sagas by an Asir, a Norse god John. (laughs) I'm very excited about that. And if you made it to the end of this episode and are sitting there thinking, hey, where was all the good stuff? Where was the plot? (laughs) Well, just you wait. It's coming in part two. Although, where's all the good stuff is a little rude. I mean, people have actually sat through this. That's true. Well, some of them did. Uh, <laughs> if you did sit through it, you got to hear about some ghosts right. and stuff. So, that was a hypothetical. While you wait for that good stuff, let us know what you think about Floamana Saga and the story of Thorgil's Scarleg's stepson so far. You can reach us on Twitter, where we're at SagaThingPod, or on Facebook, where we're SagaThingPodcast. And if you want to check out our updated judgment section on the WordPress site, go to SagaThingPodcast at WordPress.com. And uh, a special thanks to Rachel for uh, helping us out with that. Uh, and if all of those things are too difficult for you, you can write a letter to us, bury it in the pocket of the recently deceased, wait until dark, and then point their shambling corpse toward our homes. Oh, please don't do that. My dog would go so crazy. <laughs> All right, that's going to do it for us. We will be back soon with the second part of Flow Monosaga. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. just keep talking and you let me know when you decide that it's time to say something in the meantime i'm just going to keep on saying what i'm saying and hopefully at some point you will step in because jesus christ my throat's really sore and i'm going to start coughing in a second so you probably want to say something reasonably soon but it's fine you just go ahead and talk whenever you feel like it's a good moment don't let me don't let me decide when your moment is don't let me decide your line for you i know you're going to hit your mark when you decide it's time to hit your mark and in the meantime i'm going to be over here just making my (laughs) are you done You done? You mother... And the passivity of Harold, too.